Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 57th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is, Is Lawmageddon Coming? Plus, social media reflections. We're delighted to welcome Nate Russell as our guest today. Nate is a Canadian lawyer and a blogger with a passion for technology, law, access to justice, and civil liberties, especially where they intersect. He works with Courthouse Libraries BC, a nonprofit serving legal information and training to lawyers and the public, and is a recovered family lawyer and civil litigator. He consults and does legal research on the side. Thanks for joining us today, Nate. Thanks to both of you for having me. Well, Nate, I know what Armageddon is because since I'm married to John, I have watched it at least 150 times, <laughs> but I don't know what Lawmageddon is. So tell me what that means. I suppose what it brings to mind for me is any change marked by fear in the legal sphere. So uh, fear being that key ingredient, uh, probably mostly for attorneys uh, and not necessarily anyone else, but it has to be something more than anxiety and different than outright panic because we're not talking about changes that came out of nowhere. They're not ambush changes. I see this Lamageddon concept as uh, things that have been growing slowly, and now something has happened or is happening uh, that's disruptive. It's a disruption, it's powerful, and lawyers don't understand it. Uh, But they feel that there's challenges and they're stacked against the profession. Um, And probably worse, it it might be changes, it probably is, things that we have overlooked, maybe even for a long time dismissed. So the events of Lamageddon would be consequences uh, that we've put our head in the sand for. Uh, so change is mostly technology-driven. Uh, we fear that they uh, impact the business of law, uh, and maybe even worse, that they demean us and embarrass us as a profession because these are changes that may, in the end, make us look like we've missed something. We've, we've become foolish. We're the chumps. And at the end, from a professional's point of view, and lawyers being in, in some concept anyway, the, the, the quintessential professional, the professional's professional, this, this loss of credibility would be apocalyptic. So is it a, you know, is it a helpful term? It's definitely somewhat mocking. Maybe it's a bit catchy. It's kind of a cute portmanteau, but I think it offers a better, it offers one term at least in, in contradistinction to a term like the evolution of law practice, because evolution feels to me anyway, more, like positive and manageable change, stuff that lawyers welcome or feel safe around, chats about gadgetry and trial support tools for iPads, you know, better speech recognition, et cetera. These are safe and cool things to talk about, uh, but they don't produce so much anxiety as the more dangerous changes that we can't opt out of, uh, the things that, that lawyers really can't safely ignore. They, they do seem to think that Lamageddon um, gives them a sense of doom, and we've seen a lot of lawyers who have that doom-like sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's what I, I get, too. I, I think you see the panicky 
tone in some of the commentary around certain topics and and you, and you realize there's something more disturbing and and something that makes some uh, lawyers more restless in in their in their core than just discussions about you know how do you improve practice management well, well Nate can you give us some specific examples of alum again and I know you wanted me to to ask you about who the the writers of the Lapocalypse specifically are <laughs> another <laughs> these just keep they just keep showing up these great Armageddon uh, law combination. <laughs> it's not easy to pronounce that, I'll have you know. <laughs> they don't exactly roll trippingly off the tongue, I must say. It might be the only time we hear them then, this podcast, but that's fine. I, I think there's another, that's another good word, uh, but actually apocalypse in Greek means to uncover and lift the veil for discovery. Really, that's the literal translation, so maybe that's even a, a better one, because uh, most of what the profession is worried about are are things that exist that are sort of innovative. innovative. Uh, they're cool disruptions and discoveries, for at least at the tech level. So let's, uh, I guess, get into what some of those agents would be. I think topics, definitely cybersecurity, cloud computing, encryption, and all the ways that you can mess that up in a globally connected digital world. I think the alternative business structures and DIY legal services market, things that are enabled by lean technologies, that uh, represent a demonopolization of legal services and to drive away from the regulated profession's monopoly. This is what you would see with, say, what e-commerce did to retail or maybe more specifically how, you know, you can buy your contact lenses on, online and your eyewear products. Uh, what, you know, what has that done to the storefront optometrist? It's put a, a, a certain uh, type of provider into survival mode there. Another type of uh, rider of the lawpocalypse would be uh, artificial intelligence, which I guess some recent commentary suggests is part of the greater apocalypse, so we're in good company with that, and <laughs> cognitive computing. So we have IBM's Watson, which seems to be making some people nervous. Uh, one of the biggest limits, it seems, so far is that the seed set for data, when it's been, uh, when Watson's been applied to the legal context, that seed set has been somewhat limited, and, and Ross is a program up here in, well, further to the east, probably closer to you as the crow flies uh, in Toronto, University of Toronto project. Uh, mm -hmm. Ross was a finalist in, in IBM's uh, contest to see who could make the coolest application of Watson. And we saw there's, uh, they didn't quite have the, the seed set of intellectual capital that publishers would hold more tightly, but we can expect a tipping point might happen when investors to this uh, innovative and disruptive AI tool could outmuscle the self-protecting owners of this intellectual capital. Uh, and maybe a last one I throw in there was um, uh, social networking generally, or transactions of information, and now even money happening all over the internet, and the sheer, what I would call non-optional ubiquity of this network data, all that. On the first one, the cybersecurity and cloud computing uh, encryption sort of side of things, I'm thinking of systems like how lawyers store, store their files and how they communicate and how their networks are secured. And this, this idea of privacy and security is scary because as concepts, I think it's fair to say we conceive those innately as, you know, on a very primal level. So when we have physical things, we trust our feelings around privacy and security like a caveman would know that the rock has covered his dwelling uh, is heavy enough not to be moved aside by a prowling saber tooth or what have you. 
or more uh, concretely, this lock, it feels tough, this chain feels strong, I feel safe. But when it's information or when it's information that's not locked into physical paper, we don't really understand how it can be fixed in place and guarded. And when it can be sucked out of your laptop by invisible signals in the air, that uh, level of abstraction that ex- accentuates the fear. Uh, I mean, I used to work in uh, for a couple law firms before, and I remember we had uh, we were located in two different ones, located in old banks, and we used the physical vaults to store files. And there were alarms on the entry points, and the original tumblers were disabled, so that you didn't have bank grade physical security, but you had fireproofing and you had a sense of security with those files with the door shut and the alarms on. And it was pretty easy to conclude that this might be a reasonable measure to protect client information. And if you know, the files ever left the office, they did so in a briefcase, and we weren't storing things on USBs so much. Uh, that might be a bit anachronistic even for when I was coming up in the mid-2000s. But that was still the case. And I would also say that, you know, as analogies go, we have more fears around the, the recent uh, anecdote of that Arkansas lawyer. I, I don't know if you caught on to that, where there were some police department whistleblowers he was representing, and, and he received a computer hard drive on discovery from the other side that had yes. uh, that he'd caught with because he used a computer security yeah. expert to audit it. And, it found, and he found malicious, uh, malicious Trojans on there designed to steal passwords and uh, give control of his computer over to uh, an external entity. And these are anecdotes that are really new to the lawyer's psyche. I don't think we, we can conceive of this sort of uh, as having an analogy in the, in the analog realm. Yeah, I did remember that, Nate, as well. And I, and I think what uh, the flag that went up, the red flag for the att- attorney that went up, was that he never received um, discovery data before. On a on a hard drive from the police uh, or the you know the law enforcement or whatever before, previously, so that's kind of where why he had his security guy kind of check it out. What stops more lawyers, Nate, from taking these issues seriously? These are very big changes; they're very real. We all know they're happening. We hear about them on the news and in our CLEs. They acquire require, I think, a concerted response. So why is the profession so darn plotting and slow to adapt? Well, this is a psychology question, I think, as much as any. And someone once did a study on the personality traits of lawyers. Uh, I, re- I remember the results being produced in a in a paper or report uh, that had the term herding cats in there. Uh, and it was a fellow named Dr. Larry Richards who did this, uh, who at least presented this data. And the data might be about 15 years old or so, but it concluded or, or it pointed to the conclusion that lawyers – uh, have some traits that you would expect and maybe some others that you wouldn't. And one, ones you'd expect would be, you know, a high degree of skepticism over the norm, uh, more than average empathy, uh, highly autonomous and, and independent thinking qualities. But oddly enough, attorneys average fairly low on ego resilience, meaning that as a group, we're outwardly confident, but inwardly maybe more defensive and self-protective. I think we all know lawyers who have dismissed technological literacy as being something for the, the, the back office, other people to deal with in a mere detail. Maybe the stereotype doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand how something like social media might work or why people even bother to share their information and leave digital footprints all over the place. And this stereotype has adapted to computers and word processing over the last 25 years for business reasons only and has grown fairly comfortable believing that for example, a folder desktop document analogy is perfectly suitable between computer and, and the offline world. 
but the, in, in truth, the old paper world and the new digital world are, are not as analogous as all that, not at the bits and bytes level. So data can be stolen, as I mentioned, you know, much more troubling ways through computer networks versus physical breaches. And to this mindset, I think the realization that technology was more than it seemed and the risks were more than they seemed has triggered a not-so-productive uh, cultural reaction, like a, a head-in-the-sand uh, approach where you can you can grumble and stall from talking about it uh, if it seems your peers are content to pretend some of these disruptions are not as imminent as they as they may be. Uh, so maybe it's about insecurity and maybe some cognitive dissonance riding underneath that layer of skepticism, something in the minds of lawyers, uh, in the DNA of them. Hmm. Well, Nate, what do you think has to happen before lawyers start addressing these kinds of changes? Well, I think like any apocalyptic uh, metaphor requires a, a, a cataclysmic event. So uh, I think a cataclysmic event of some kind that that will require the law societies to shoulder more of the responsibility. I can imagine it might be a crime ring that exploits the vulnerable home networks of some attorneys to snag sensitive emails in transit. This actually came to mind because it was yesterday I, I saw on someone's LinkedIn update that a UK solicitor had been, who was uh, helping some clients sell property, and that was his business, doing the conveyancing and, and distributing uh, net sale proceeds had uh, his email compromised, the client's email was compromised, and somewhere uh, a crook inserted themselves into the communications chain and provided false banking information. So this was a, a very targeted attack because between lawyers and their clients, sometimes money flows. And you can imagine it might be information stolen from a cyber criminal ring or it could be a foreign government and maybe something happens to a refugee claimant. That would not have happened if the lawyer's data had been better protected or encrypted. Maybe a, a hostile foreign government has intercepted something or, or hacked in to a poorly secured uh, store of client files and, and obtained information that resulted in, in someone maybe losing a life even. So it'll be something that puts the public's trust for lawyers as an institution and as a profession into jeopardy in a real and immediate way, uh, something that Law societies will, will have to stand up and, and address, I, I, I suspect. Yeah. We all know lawyers are kind of hidebound by reputation. Uh, they do not have the reputation of jumping toward change and embracing it, certainly. So what kind of examples do we have, Nate, if any, of lawyers making fast changes to the legal profession? Right. Well, I suppose it's like the frog in the water. <laughs> when does it jump? When it's boiling. Um, we have an example here in BC. Uh, this happened with trust accounts about 13 years ago. We had a fraudulent lawyer and a real estate developer, uh, two people, manipulate a large fraud to the tune of 40 million bucks uh, back wow. in 2002. So the $40 million uh, loss shouldered by a profession of about 10,000 people. And we call that the Weirich claim in honor of one of the, uh, the, the, the fraudulent lawyer who perpetrated it or helped to. And the Law Society of BC back in, at that time circled the wagons as the carnage became known. And it instituted a payback plan that all 10,000 of us paid into for many years until really quite recently when it finally paid off that, that huge loss. But they also, the Law Society also implemented strict protocols around trust accounting, uh, training at the very uh, baby lawyer level. Part of the bar exam in, involves knowing the trust accounting rules. 
and there's stiff penalties and, and reporting requirements that attach to all lawyers who deal with trust accounts. Uh, those things are were really beefed up. Those protocols were really beefed up after that loss. Needless to say, that was a cataclysmic event that didn't necessarily involve technology, but uh, but trust reporting. And I think if we're looking forward to what things we might jump towards and change would be maybe proactive guidance for individual lawyers, even if that means more handholding. And I think there's a reluctance on the part of lawyers to accept handholding as a as a gesture, as a as a form of support although there's precedent for it. There's actually, I was just thinking about this in a completely different context, there's precedent for, we have a lawyer's assistance program in this province, which I think it costs us around $60 a a year, each one of us is a line item on our practice fee, and it goes to support a program for lawyers who are dealing with mental health or addiction issues. And from the law society's point of view, that's a great point to step in if there's going to be harm uh, befalling the public from a lawyer's falling off the rails for one reason or another, and it's a good, a good measure to put in place. But it very much is a is a very nanny tactic. It's a very hand-holding one, and and it and it accepts the risks that inherently people and maybe high-stress professions will will fall prey to 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 those stresses and and become dysfunctional. Well, we have to look at technological competency as a, as a similar form of, if you want to call it a, a weakness or at least a risk that we need to to help de-risk. So more proactive training, um, certification maybe of specific tech solutions or cloud services, something I've spoken out a little bit about was uh, I I think that there's a place for a regulator uh, even relating that uh, activity to the public interest and protecting of the public interest to say provide more proactive advice on cloud services and maybe even approved configurations of equipment and encryption tools that lawyers could practically take off the shelf and use maybe a range of them so you're not putting all your eggs in one basket as far as a solution goes, but something that's measured to the uh, size of a practice and the type of firm. And this kind of proactive strategy you know, would be great. Whether it becomes a reactive strategy, to me, that's the doubt. Well, we, we know that different jurisdictions are they're coming at the Lomageddon problem in, in kind of different ways. How is that helping or, or is it actually hindering? It helps from the point of view that many people working on a problem in different ways might come up with a solution that works. So you have 70 different labs trying to come up with a a cure versus just one working very hard with all the same resources. But in the interim, it creates a lot of fragmentation. So you have different protocols with respect to even how do you uh, how do you justify searching disclosed information for metadata. You'll have different protocols or different uh, ethical guidelines in different jurisdictions in the U.S., I know, you know, whether or not you're even allowed to mine for metadata or not. Other instances would be there's a uniform uh, legislation that uh, isn't uniform but maybe makes sense and should be. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of, it creates a lot of dialogue and I just don't know if as many lawyers are paying as much attention to the universe of results that are being produced as make all those experiments uh, truly valuable. It'd be great to see some more coordination for protocols, including, you know, admission of electronic records. You all work heavily in that area, so. Yeah, we'd like to see that ourselves down here. (laughs) Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. 
Well, this is normally the spot in our show where we hear words from our sponsors. This potentially represents a unique opportunity for you. Digital Detectives is seeking sponsors. You can hear your advertisement right here. If you're interested, contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is, Is Lomageddon Coming? Plus Social Media Reflections. Our guest is Nate Russell, a Canadian lawyer and blogger with a passion for technology, law, access to justice, and civil liberties, especially where they intersect. Nate, social media evidence, lawyers and litigation, where is counsel in the judiciary in Canada with respect to social media evidence? Well, I think it's fair to say that it's all over the place. And uh, I was reading up on a good article by John Gregory, another Canadian and uh, fellow law contributor, who was instrumental in in coming up with or helping to come up with our uh, Uniform Evidence Act, which isn't, as uh, I mentioned in a previous answer, it's a good example of something that isn't in place uniformly. So there's different rules of evidence when it comes to producing social media evidence in BC versus in say Saskatchewan or Ontario or Quebec. And I think the criminal courts here have uh, some of the jurisprudence I've seen demonstrates a stricter interest in, in the nuts and bolts of adducing social media evidence because, of course, there's a liberty interest at stake and, and, and making sure the evidence fits is, is uh, I think there's a higher bar to me. But in the civil context, you, you really see things all over the place. So it is still all over the place. Uh, we have a a good starting point in Uniform Evidence Act. We have some good principles coming out of it, but one of the problems is even if that uniform uh, law was was uh, across the board, you would have differences uh, in practice, uh, practical problems, such as what is a good standard for the integrity of a record system. Uh, we have a we have a Canadian standard that no one knows about, but it's been in place for almost 10 years. And uh, you know, apparently most lawyers have never heard of it, and even IT people who support lawyers don't know about it. So there's an education component, even if the protocols are there, we're still uh, there's a disconnect. Well, well, Nate, I understand that there's a, a Canadian case, uh, BDVBD, which is a kind of a fun case to study. Can you tell our listeners what that's about and what does that represent and teach us? Yeah, so this BD versus BD case is a 2013 Saskatchewan uh, case here in Canada. And it involves a woman who, uh, an ex-wife who'd moved out to the West Coast. Uh, she moved to Victoria. She claimed to be on disability benefits and uh, claimed to be in dire, a bit more dire straits and sought a continuation of spousal support payments from her ex who still lived back on the prairies. Now, the children were grown, so this was a case really just about spousal support. But it all fell apart for her when a barrage of tweets were uncovered uh, assumedly by the ex-husband's counsel or, or, or someone on uh, adverse interest there, uh, bragging uh, kind of obscenely about the jet set lifestyle. And, and uh, I think, Sharon, you've read the case. You'll, you'll never really see the word Lexus used so many times in, in a family <laughs> law case, uh, hobnobbing at swanky functions and uh, humble bragging about philanthropy. I like the tweet, one of them when there was... Uh, She's saying, on, I'm on the Inner Harbor, killing pictures of raspberry mojitos and people watching. 
and just this sort of. Uh, <laughs> she, she she didn't exactly sound living living the high life as she was. She didn't exactly sound like she was depriving herself of anything. No, in fact, there's multiple Lexuses involved. Lexi. Lexi. Yes, we did. We did decide the plural of Lexus was Lexi. I believe we had a conversation about that online. It was such a case that this. Yeah, it's seldom will you need to to create a term that captures the aggregate for Lexus, but in this case it required that. <laughs> Uh, and the judge wrote a, a good Rye decision uh, dismissing her claims. Uh, uh, and I think this is a good case, not because the facts are funny, although that's a really good, it really helps to make this a learning point. But for one thing, it's not really at all clear in that case how the tweets even came in as evidence. It wasn't addressed in the judgment. It, you know, it clearly that, that what she was saying in tweets or what someone was saying in tweets was admitted for the proof of its contents, because that's the only way that uh, that evidence would be uh, material to the question of the ex-wife's need for support is whether or not she was in fact not in need. So the truth of the contents were really at the base of, of that uh, of that evidence, and and we didn't see any analysis in there as terms of its admission for uh, you know as an exception to hearsay. Maybe it was an admission con- uh, counter to her own interests. There might be some rules that you'd sort of reverse engineer, but it did, it wasn't apparent why that why that was all in or why it wasn't fought about. And it's also uh, there's also an attribution problem because social media can arise out of an account, but you may not know how many people have access to the account. And and in this case, you did you did have uh, the judge recognizing that it was an account controlled both by the by the ex-wife and her new partner, who was a business person. So there was no real testing of the attribution of those comments. Uh, there is no testing of the uh, of the merits of that evidence from a hearsay perspective. And lastly, I think maybe is the most important one comment is that uh, who who didn't catch this before it went to uh, reasons i mean how could you have been blindsided by this it was completely the nail in the claims in the claims coffin and to me that raises issues of technological competency and the fact that every council has a has to consider the existence of social media and social evidence yeah, that that was an especially fun case, Nate. I, I enjoyed reading that a lot, so I commend it to the audience to look that one up. So, Nate, what what will a tool look like, real quickly, that helps lawyers capture and use social media evidence? You know, there are a couple of tools out there. There's two that I've personally tried. One is that X1 Social. It's a very deep and uh, expensive tool. It's uh, it's used by law enforcement and uh, and bigger agencies to uh, get a a very deep picture of, of social media activity. But there's also a more quick and easy tool that I've seen and come that, coming out of a startup here in, in Vancouver called, uh, the tool is called Web Preserver. And it's a Google Chrome plugin right now. Now, I think if they can get the costing right on that, what it does is you're on a website, you could be looking at a tweet on uh, on Twitter's homepage, and, and you can take a screen grab of that. Now, obviously, a screen grab is, would be basically free. But what this does is it hashes that information and timestamps it, and so there's a record from this third party that this activity had happened and this file was generated, and that provides a lot more reliability. Uh, if you got the price point right on on a tool like that, as convenient as it would be to ride as a, an extension in a browser or or some other app, I think you would want to have that encouraged and be adopted, and then judges or masters of the court would see this evidence come in with a slightly uh, or a much better degree of uh, reliability because of this authenticity component. And I think that would drive best practices. And and if, you'd, if you could make this tool on a sort of a freemium model, then I think that could be a successful product if it, w- if it became standard. Hmm. 
Well, but I think it has to be lean and simple. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But we've got all these other apps that are part of social media, you know, the Yik Yaks of the world, the Instagrams and all that stuff. How, how do we capture and use those? Because those, those are real troublesome depending on what social media platform you're going after. Yeah, well, I, I, obviously that, that comes to the uh, best practices at the outset of opening a file is you want to investigate, and there's some checklists that tell you this. And I think about the the type of issue you're dealing with, who your clients, who your client is, and who the other side is, and what kind of, even what kind of culture or ethnicity they come from, or a specific trade maybe, and see what's uh, likely to be the the social media picture. And and from that point, now there's going to be the fringe cases like uh, maybe you can call Yik Yak a, a fringe case. The major the major use instances we have are Facebook and Twitter and the kind of leaders, but there's going to be these fringe cases. And I think for anything, and, and of course, moving forward, there will be others that we, we don't even know of yet. Uh, so I don't think we can ever take humans out of the equation as far as treating social media evidence um, as any other kind of digital evidence. You, you might need forensic analysis of mobile devices, to, which can usually yield metadata if you, if you have uh, some link. Uh, you'll have to obviously know who you're suing. So you'll have some reason to suspect an individual. And from there, you can... Um, you can use you know, witnesses to establish the connection between that person's alleged activity in social media, uh, draw comparisons, say, between slang they've used in Facebook posts or text messages here and there and say this is of a, of a, of a style that relates to what's happening here in this, uh, in this defamatory post on Yik Yak or what have you. But I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't rule out the, the human elements in this. It becomes part of the balance. Let's go back just one last time to Lamageddon because it's such a fun word. So what are the consequences, Nate, if lawyers and regulators fail the tests of Lamageddon? Right. Well, law societies, I think this is a universal statement to say that they regulate the profession um, on the behalf of, of the public. So they, they regulate for the public interest. And the public has a very real, although not always appreciated, uh, interest in the rule of law. And the best guardians we know of for the rule of law are an open court system and an independent judiciary and an independent bar. Uh, I think that if Lamageddon happens and the the risks, the risk is that lawyers lose relevance and credibility. And if we let ego and tradition get in the way of being proactive about facing the challenges, uh, even fearful change bring, then uh, these changes will sweep over us. I think the, definitely the consequence of failing the test of Lamageddon is an erosion of the, ultimately the rule of law potentially. It's kind of a bigger consequence. Certainly not trivial. Thank you very much for joining us today. You wrote a really nice blog post for Slaan. I enjoyed reading it a lot, and that's what spurred uh, inviting you to, to join us. So thank you for sharing your wit and wisdom with us today. We really enjoyed having you. Well, thanks for characterizing me as having either of those qualities. That's uh, <laughs> an honor. And it's, and it's been great to uh, chat with you both. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoy this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.